0: Hello, and welcome to the TLDR Podcast, a show about the culture, business, and gossip of money. And this week, the hardest working man in show business is maybe from Hamilton, Ontario? I'm not saying he is, but we sat down with Martin Short, and he told us a lot about money and how he feels about tattoos. My name is Devin Friedman. Here with me today, as always, are my co-hosts, Kyla Scanlon. Who used to work on a bond trading desk before becoming the honorary macroeconomics professor at the University of TikTok? <laughs> the
1: University of TikTok is uh, it's a new one. I haven't heard that before.
0: I'll take it. Kat Angus is the managing editor of Wealth Simple's TLDR newsletter and the host of the beloved podcast, I Hate It, But I Love It. She also owns her own house in Toronto, even though she's not a boomer. Is that true, Kat? That is accurate. Hello, Devin. And, of course, Sarah Rieger, the business and markets correspondent for the TLDR newsletter. And she comes to us, as always, from the TLDR satellite office in her apartment in Calgary. How is the weather in Calgary, Sarah?
2: Actually, nice. We have this warm weather phenomenon called a Chinook right now, so all the snow has melted, and I am very, very happy.
0: But there was snow to melt. This is unfortunately true. (laughs) Okay, let's start out like we do every week, with the vital question, who's making and losing money? And why do we ask that question? Because it's a way to get at whatever we think are the most interesting money stories of the week. And Sarah... Let's start with you, as always. Who is making and losing money in markets this week?
2: Well, homeowners and the kids of homeowners are increasingly getting richer. Like, we all know housing in Canada is ridiculously expensive. It's basically, I feel like, all Canadians talk about anymore. But some new numbers came out last week that really show how anybody who doesn't own a home or whose parents didn't own a home um, is being increasingly shut out of the housing market entirely. So StatCan put out this statement last week called the bank of mom and dad in reference to a new study. And the take home point is exactly what it sounds like. If you're in your 30s and you make less than 80K a year, you're twice as likely to own a home if your parents were homeowners than if your parents didn't own a home. Mm -hmm. And that's because like home ownership has become such a reliable wealth generator in Canada that parents often end up either being able to pass along their home to their kids or at least save up enough cash to give them a big down payment. So, you know, despite growing up in a single parent household, uh, I'm super stoked to report that the uh, little bundle we had apparently turns me into a Nepo baby.
0: <laughs> Wait, so how like what's the difference? Is it worse than it used to be? Is Nepo baby houses a more of a phenomenon now than it was, say, 20 years ago?
2: Yeah. So there was this broker who was interviewed in the Toronto Star who said that more than 80% of his first time home buying clients relied on money from family to be able to buy their home. And, you know, this is largely based in the GTA. So to be fair, it's a very expensive market. But that number has just been increasing. I think between 2015 and 21, uh, the number of first time buyers who needed that bank of mom and dad cash went up around 10%. And it's probably higher now given just how much prices have risen.
3: Yeah, I mean, I am in a dual-income household. We both have good jobs and we have no other debt. And even if, like, I'm very fortunate to have had the bank of mom and dad help us with our down payment. But if we hadn't had that, we still wouldn't have been able to buy a house.
0: So it increasingly seems like if you're a first-time homebuyer, either you have help from your parents or you don't buy a house. Yeah. Kyla. Who is making and losing money this week that's interesting to you?
1: So OpenAI is the maker of ChatGPT, and they were hemorrhaging money for a second here. And the story is pretty ridiculous in a 50-car pileup kind of way. Everybody probably saw the headlines that Sam Altman, the now former and current CEO of OpenAI, which we'll get into how that happened, was ousted by the nonprofit organization's board of directors on November 17th, only to be brought back on five days later. And the reason that this happened was, number one, all of the OpenAI employees ended up mutinying. Uh, 700 people were like, you have to bring Sam Altman back on. And the board didn't really have a real reason for why they ousted him beyond the idea of safety. So everybody on Twitter was freaking out. And one board member came out saying that he regretted voting Sam out. And then Microsoft scooped Sam up to run an AI initiative at Microsoft because they own a 49% stake in OpenAI and invested 13 billion USD. And so the drama just got pretty ridiculous, but he's CEO again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had such a weird experience of this story because the whole beginning part of it, I've, I followed on Twitter, which is like my feed is like dominated by journal tech journalists, but then also, you know, some founders and economists and whatever. And basically the story was just like, oh my God, they're such idiots. They got rid of Sam Altman, such a boneheaded move. They look like such losers. It was all sort of like, you know, sideline sports reportery. who screwed up. And then, you know, the second part of me following the story was starting to read about the fact that OpenAI was started as a nonprofit in concert with Elon Musk with the idea that they were going to start an AI company with the greater good of humanity at heart rather than, you know, like what Google was working on. And then, you know, if I'm right, the board essentially fired Sam Alton because it was like, okay, we're scared now that you don't have the, the good of humanity as a bottom line. And then everyone rebelled and and was like, no, bro, that was a bad business decision. And 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 then everyone backed down and was like, okay, let's forget about the apocalypse and hire Sam back.
1: That's pretty much what happened to a T.
0: We love Lex Luthor. (laughs) Do we know what they were scared about? Like, was there something specific?
2: Yeah, they it, so it just came out in a Reuters piece that the um it sounds like some staff researchers were really worried about the company's ability to handle this new project called QStar. Um and QStar is supposed to at least according to this piece be kind of one of the first steps toward artificial general intelligence, which is kind of the AI we think of in movies where it kind of has sentience and can reason and logic for things on its own. So there were some worries about, you know, proceeding too quickly with that in a way that could actually be really dangerous.
3: So everyone's talking about AGI like it's the end of the world, but like how exactly is it going to kill all of us?
1: Yeah. So artificial general intelligence is the idea that The AI would be better at any job than any person, right? Like it can outperform, outthink. And for more context, there's this idea called infinite paperclips, where if you tell the AI to produce paperclips, it could go totally scorched earth in producing paperclips and get rid of everything that is not around producing paperclips, including humans, right? Or anything else. Yeah, and that's never a question I want to think about with Tech startups
2: at all is like, could this destroy humanity? And I don't know. I just feel like there should have been signs here too with Sam Altman's story. Like, he, we recently learned, was um, kicked out of Y Combinator, like the startup tech accelerator. I think he was president there, but you know, it just came out recently that he was actually ousted from that company by his mentor for kind of similar reasons to now, where he was making decisions, you know, too much by himself and kind of like too aggressive of moves.
0: Let me ask this question. If you're only looking at it through like a lens of investing or making money, how who was the winner and who was the loser of the the sort of the drama around AI? Is Microsoft doing better now than it was? It's doing worse now than it was?
1: So Microsoft won, clearly. Sam Altman, when he was brought back on, got to redesign the board basically in his image. so he added on Brett Taylor, who was the former co-ceo of Salesforce. He also added on Larry Summers who is a man that you just cannot escape like every time you turn around like Larry Summers is somehow there, the former Treasury Secretary of the United States and then he kept on uh, the, the founder of Quora, which was a question answering website that still exists. So Sam Waltman won. And because Sam Waltman won, Microsoft won, now the board is designed to pursue profit. They're designed to put safety to the side, right? And so Microsoft now has OpenAI really under their thumb. I
3: feel like Isaac Asimov has been trying to warn us about this for a very long time. I think
1: that's the thing is, like, clearly the board was trying to do stuff with safety. Like, that's probably the primary—we don't know for sure, right? But that's probably the primary reason that they booted him out— And I just think, you know, like, drama is great. Like, obviously, Silicon Valley loves it. But the fact that these people can't get it together enough to, like, figure out their CEO situation, and we're supposed to trust them with, like, building the future of technology, I just think that there's such a discrepancy there. And that's what really concerns me. Like, you should at least be able to run an organization in order to run the future of (laughs) the world, in my opinion. It's two real housewives over there.
0: So nasty and so rude. Cat Angus. Who is making and losing money this week? That's interesting to you.
3: Well, this isn't as dramatic as President Business inventing Skynet, but potentially here in Ontario, the beer store is about to lose a bunch of money. So in Ontario, you can only buy alcohol from a licensed government store, uh, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, or the Lickbow, as the cool kids call it. There are exceptions, like the beer store, which is the only place you can buy cases of beer besides the LCBO. Uh, But that might end soon. So what a perfect time to talk about Ontario's weird-ass alcohol laws.
2: Yeah, I just want, like, this is the thing that confuses me so much about Ontario. Like, as an Albertan, the first time I went there and I had a house party to go to, everyone was like, oh, well, we better, like, plan our trip in advance to go very early to the store because there are only specific stores that sell alcohol and they close at certain times. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, what is this, like backwater energy y'all
3: have. <laughs> I was I was baffled.
0: Yeah, it's very bizarre. Yeah. What's harder to buy in Ontario? Weed or 24 cans of beer at once?
3: <laughs> it depends
2: on what time of day you're doing it. So why is it like this in Ontario?
3: Uh, It kind of goes back to prohibition. I mean, back then, uh, instead of banning alcohol outright, Ontario and Quebec sort of were like, we will regulate it very strongly. And then once prohibition was over, it was kind of a compromise of saying like, yes, we'll allow it back, but we're only going to sell it through licensed government facilities. And uh, it's kind of been that way ever since. So what's happening with it right now? What would change? So there's this thing called the Master Framework Agreement. It's basically 195 pages of legalese entirely about how the beer store and the LCBO have a special right to sell beer. But the Toronto Star cited some inside sources saying that Premier Doug Ford's Ontario government isn't going to renew this agreement. And if that happens, it's possible you could finally buy beer from a grocery store or a convenience store.
0: But it could also mean that the beer store would take a big hit. It feels like Canada is trying to administrate two different and conflicting problems. One, we drink too much. <laughs> and the other is we drink too much. And we would like to be able to buy all the drinks that we want to buy. <laughs> well, I mean, even with Ontario's
3: weird restrictions, alcohol sales in Canada account for like 1% of our GDP. Uh go us, I guess. Uh, so I'm almost shocked it's
2: not more. We, we have a problem.
3: You got to get through the winter somehow. Be careful, man. There's a beverage here.
0: <laughs> okay. So instead of our usual whiteboard section, uh, today we're going to do a TLDR Money Diary. So Wealth Simple Magazine started doing money diaries about five years ago. It's a pretty simple idea. We talk to interesting people and have them tell us their life story through the prism of money. We've done a lot of them. We've done them with everyone from Anthony Bourdain to Kim Kardashian, from David Sedaris to Margaret Atwood. And today we interviewed someone we've wanted to interview for a really long time. Can I call you Marty? Yes. I feel embarrassed because it reminds me when people are like, well, you know... When Bobby De Niro used to tell me... I know, it is. People would always say Steve Sondheim. But to me,
4: it always seemed like it should be Steven Sondheim.
0: Well, I, out of respect, I feel like I should call you Martin.
4: No, you, you can call me Marty.
0: Okay. Marty. Yes? So we caught up with Martin Short last week. He was staying at his sister's house in Palm Desert, California. He's 73 now, but he's working a lot. He's one of those people you could call the hardest-working men in show business. He was about to shoot a commercial. He's doing these live shows with Steve Martin, who's also one of his best friends. And he's in between seasons of his TV show, Only Murders in the Building, which is a show on Hulu that also stars Steve Martin, as well as Selena Gomez, and people like Paul Rudd and Meryl Streep, depending on the season. So money-wise, what's interesting about Martin Short is he grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. His father had a high-level job at Stelco, the Canadian steel company, But what was interesting about his money life is that it was kind of boring. A lot of people in show business or actors or musicians or whatever, they make a big deal about how much they suffered for their art. But Marty did not. He grew up with money, and he was really honest with us. It wasn't something his family really worried about. I don't remember it being really discussed that
4: much. I think money is discussed more when it's running out.
0: Marty, I I feel like I should ask you, are you conducting this interview in, like, an episode of Cops where you're actually running away from uh, the police?
4: Uh, uh, Someone has stolen something nearby. Now, there's a circling uh, helicopter.
0: So by the time Marty was 20, both his parents had died, his mother from cancer and his father from a stroke. They left him about a half a million dollars in a trust. But to me,
4: touching my inheritance was like, Asking my father for a loan.
0: So I never really touched that money for a long time. So do you, when you had your money and your trust, did you know how it was invested? Have you ever like been interested in that stuff?
4: No, No, not, not remotely. My instinct is about people, I think. So I have instinctive trust in the people that are hired to pay attention.
0: What's you know, like money is just a way to talk about human stories. So, like, what's important to you in your life right now? And how's that different than what was important to you in your life 30 years ago?
4: Well, I mean, it's very strange for me because I, I kind of, you know, you're suddenly 73 and it, it's startling because you kind of have the same energy and you're doing the same kind of jobs and um. You know, I I have my nine categories of life based on the idea of like your life is a report card. So if one course isn't going well, you can bring your GPA up with another. And certainly one of them, category five, is money. But first is one is self. Two is your wife slash husband and kids. Three is your original family. Four friends. Five, money. Six, career. Seven, creativity. Eight, discipline. Nine, lifestyle. So if, if one is, you know, and if your career is no one's hiring you, you can be a better friend, bring your GPA up in that, you know, category. So money is, of course, an important part of your life. But if you've got money covered, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy.
0: And that those nine classes, that's not an order of importance. That's just just like a schedule in high school. They're all of, of importance.
4: Well, I would say number one is self. That's pretty important. They're kind of in in order of importance, I think. I mean, I started it because the first time in in, in my career when I was, I had done a few years, I now wasn't working. So I had three months where I was panicked. And then by the end of the year, I realized I'd made more money that year than any other year. So now I wanted those three months back. And I thought, well, what if I utilize those three months? But, you know, at that age, you don't have the confidence there will be anything more. But it's it's sometimes people obsess on one category and they miss out on, you know, other ways to bring up their esteem in their life because you're just going for the final GPA.
0: Is there anything you're not doing well at in those classes right now? Oh, um, let's see. Well, everyone wants
4: to be five pounds thinner. So that's a category. That's why yeah, I don't get an A for, you know, category one. Two, three, four, I'm always great. Five, great. Six, career, great. Creativity, you know. And discipline, those are the tough categories. Discipline.
0: Discipline in what?
4: Well, it could be, um, for me, ice cream can't be kept around. Really, if I have... People at the house, and there's ice cream, and then they leave. The first thing I do, bye, everybody. And then I go to the freezer, take all the ice cream out, and let it melt. Because it's like, you know, an addict and having some extra heroin around. I know of what you speak.
0: So my question is, what are you bullish on right now? I'm bullish on... Uh, research into the technique
4: of tattoo removal.
0: Growth industry. Yeah, I think it's going to be. There's going to be a lot of regrets. Perhaps do you have a tattoo that you regret? I have no tattoos.
4: I just know that if I said in 19, you know, 78, this hairdo I have is now the permanent hairdo for my life. I think I would regret it and um, pay someone to change that.
0: As a creative person, how much is your self-worth tied up in the success of whatever your creative endeavor is or your ability to make the things you want to make or, or get cast in the things you want to get cast in and that, and that kind of thing?
4: Well, it's obviously if you're in a successful show, that's a great feeling and you feel great. And when you go to Gelson's, people know you more. But generally, you also, though, to have a long career, must build up a resilience to know in your heart when something's good. So that if you make something that's good and odd, and no one likes it at the time, you shouldn't go into a funk. A lot of time, you do something and then 10 years later, it becomes a massive cult hit. And you just have to know in your heart what it is.
0: Do you have an example of something that you loved when you did it, even if it didn't meet success? Oh, a film called Clifford. Is that scary?
4: That was so much fun. By the way, how many years do you think you'll get for kidnapping me, Uncle Ken Most Wanted? Life. Let's go a little faster, shall we?
0: Yes.
4: Definitely was not heralded at the time, but it's become... Uh, something else in its next 10 years and 20 years.
0: What, what has it become? Just
4: a lot of people seem to love it. And there's been you know, screenings of it in L.A. There's going to be a screening of it in New York. A, a re-appreciation. It's lovely, but I always thought it was funny. But I don't look at my old stuff. I don't look at stuff. It's not Sunset Boulevard over here.
0: <laughs> um, let's end by talking a little bit about your current show, Only Murders. Mm-hmm. How would you title the current chapter of your life? Um, Well,
4: it's thrilling to be in a hit show, but it's more thrilling to be in a hit show that you actually are really, really proud of, and it's a lot of fun and joyful to work. I would say that is the kind of full home run of this show.
0: Do you think it's the best show you've ever done?
4: No, I I let others decide that. You know, I've been in a lot of great shows. You know, SCTV wasn't bad.
0: No, I mean, yes, it's hard to beat Saturday Night Live, for instance. <laughs> I have my answer to this, but what do you think the show is really about? I don't have no. know. I, you tell me. Well, it's not something you would say, but to me, as a viewer, you guys seem like you're having a good time making that show. Yes. And you're self-aware, you know exactly what's going on, your pros... It's like just watching you guys enjoy yourselves, very funny, talented people enjoying themselves, doing something that's fun. I'm glad you feel that because that's exactly the vibe of it.
4: So the set is loose and laughing and laughing and laughing. And then you add Meryl Streep to it and she works the same way. It's only she's there for the hang,
0: she says. So are you in fact the hardest working man in show business? Yes.
4: I really am not it it just it looks that way sometimes I mean it's true that once you pass the point of working to try to you don't have to worry about the rent anymore then you reach a point where then why are you doing it and you're doing it because it keeps you young and vitalized and creative and it's what you still have a desire to do
0: Martin Short, thank you for talking to us. What a charming man. I have to say he was very charming.
1: I thought the tattoo removal part was interesting. (laughs) I have a lot of tattoos. (laughs) And I was like, oh, oh no. But yeah, I thought the whole thing was interesting where he was talking about what it means to be successful is like, you know, basically just having fun. I feel like it's really easy to forget that.
0: Okay, Kyla, what did we learn this week on the TLDR podcast?
1: Yes, so we learned that the best-performing bank is the bank of mom and dad. Sam Altman got fired and hired in less than a week. The beer store can be a policy tool, and Martin Short loves
3: ice cream. Same, Martin.
0: Same. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. We will see you next Tuesday. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you want. It really helps. This show is sponsored by Wealth Simple and made by me, Devin Friedman, Kat Angus, Matt Carraz, Sarah Rieger, Kyla Scanlon, with Flora Lichtman, Jared Sullivan, and Greg Tharp. Fact-checking by Brennan Doherty. Theme music by Andy Huckvale. Engineering by Veronica Rodriguez. Martin Short by Martin Short. See you next week. The TLDR podcast is offered by Wealthsimple Media Incorporated and is for informational purposes only. The content in the TLDR podcast is not investment advice, a recommendation to buy or sell assets or securities, and does not represent the views of Wealthsimple Financial Corporation or any of its other subsidiaries or affiliates. Wealthsimple Media Incorporated does not endorse any third-party views referenced in this content. More information at Wellsimple.com
4: slash TLDR.